invite you to, if you have your Bibles here, and encourage you to bring them um, to Genesis. Doesn't take you long to get to that book of the Bible. We're going to be looking at part of Genesis 2 and hopefully hopefully a lot of Genesis chapter 3. I know I mentioned last week that uh, we wouldn't be doing a verse-by-verse exegesis. In chapter 3, we will be spending a little bit more time uh, looking at a lot of the verses there because it is such a significant chapter in the Bible. You know, we all face decisions all the time. We all have opportunities to make good choices, bad choices. And the reality is all of our decisions do have some sort of consequence, some much greater than others. And I think about Adam and Eve in the garden. When the tempter comes, the serpent, to deceive. And they make a choice. Both of them make a choice. And it's just mind-boggling to think that individuals' choice affects humanity from that day in the garden to the day and until Jesus comes back. Talk about a significant choice. Now, most of our choices probably won't carry that much weight and that much significance, but they do have a big impact on each one of our lives Every day, the choices that we make. The title of my message is just a continuation of, In the Beginning, God. In the Beginning, God. God created. Not in the beginning, God became, because he always was. He was eternal. But he decided, in his infinite wisdom, to create all that we know. And one of the things I wanted to stress, and I tried to stress last week, and I will continue to stress at every opportunity, is just how precious you and I are in his sight. How much God absolutely loves us. In Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, we should see over and over in those two chapters everything that he's doing, everything that he is creating is pointing towards that moment on day six when he creates man. In his own image, he creates man. All that was done was in preparation for us, for the environment we are living in. And we were created for relationship. Man was created for relationship. First and foremost, created for relationship with God, our Heavenly Father but also created for relationship with others, other humans. The most significant relationship we see in Genesis chapter 2 between man and woman, husband and wife, who he says he created to fill the earth, be fruitful and multiply, but also to have dominion over the earth. We are significant. I stress that so much because it seems like we battle so much with that lie from the enemy that somehow or other we're not good enough, that somehow or other you are disqualified or I am disqualified because of something that we've done or said, something in our past. And that's such a lie from the enemy, such a powerful deception. So we're going to be looking, and I'm going to start in Genesis chapter 
uh, 2, verse 7 is where we completed last week. And I just want to read verse 7 and 8 because there is something that is a subtle and almost maybe a hidden change that takes place in those two verses. I want to read Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living being or a living soul, kind of where we ended up last week. He became a living soul, a living being. And then it goes on in verse 8, said, And the Lord God planted a garden towards the east in Eden, and there he placed the man of whom he had formed. What is the significant thing that I believe took place in those two verses that we had not seen before in the book of Genesis? Up till this point, it always just said, God did. God said. In other words, Elohim. Kind of the proper name for God. Now, starting in verse 7, as you go through the next 22 verses, you're going to see 11 different times he refers to himself or he is referred to by the writer as Lord God. It's kind of like two names. Up till this time, it was Elohim, God. And now it is Lord God. And the second word there is Yahweh. Yahweh God. And I believe there's a significance to this fact that it starts being used as Yahweh Elohim, Lord God. It's not just God in his proper name. The name Yahweh carries with it the deity relationship that he wants to have with people. He is Yahweh, the God of Israel, his chosen people that he chose for relationship. For you and I, when he creates Adam and Eve, when the significance seems to be all on Adam and Eve as we go in the rest of this chapter, in chapter 3, he is Lord God. I believe it's another example or another way for us to see how significant it is that he wants relationship with us. He wants to have relationship with us. The Lord God. Notice that he planted a garden on day 3, when he created all of the vegetation, all of those plants, etc., it's like it says here he created a garden. He created a special spot. Why? For man. Once again, man is his focus. And he creates a special spot called the Garden of Eden. And then it says he places Adam in it. It was designed specifically for him and ultimately for Eve. And he's placed in this garden. In Genesis 2, verse 15, and I alluded to this very briefly last week, it says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. Now, depending on your translation, those last two words could be different. He could have worked it or he tended it or he dressed the garden, kept it, took care of it. And I mentioned just in passing, again, there's two different Hebrew words there. And the only reason I mention this is in the rest of the law of Moses, those two words are used over and over. And when they're used over and over, they're used to talk about the worship of the Levitical priesthood. The two words, abad, means to, to serve, to serve the subjects, to serve whatever. And with the Levitical priests, they were serving in the priesthood. And then he says, shamar, 
to guard, to observe, to keep. And we see throughout Leviticus and, and beyond it talks about keeping the covenants, keeping the Sabbath, obeying the commandments. And I, I, to me, there's a significance that those two words are used here in reference to the work that he is calling man to do. Work wasn't a result of the fall of man. God designed man to work from the very beginning. And our work, I believe we can see a connection here, is it's an act of worship. We talk about as Christians, everything we do should be as unto the Lord, worshiping the Lord. I believe when he put Adam and Eve in the garden and he told Adam to work it, keep it, uh, to take care of the garden, it was an act of worship for him to be accomplishing. And he did this, and it wasn't drudgery. You know, you ask people now, how many of you like to go to work? Well, there's a small percentage of us that say, yeah, I love work. But most of us, it's like, no. And I think of the farmers. Because Adam really was called to be the first farmer, right? The drudgery to get that crop to grow. The things that we have to do to keep the weeds, the thistles. It's interesting that he talks about these thistles. The things that we have to do that are out of our control. We, we have no control over the weather. We have no control over the, the rains. We have no control over hail or winds. We don't have any control. Work became drudgery for man after the fall. Before the fall, it was not designed to be that way. And then we see in Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, our first mention of those two trees in the center of the garden. In verse 9, he says, Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow the tree of life, and also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Two trees in the garden. The tree of life, if you would eat of the tree of life, eternal life. And then there was this other tree where you would eat of that fruit and you would gain knowledge of good and evil. And up to this time, Adam and Eve would have had no idea that evil really even existed. Everything was good. Everything was perfect. Everything was very good. In Genesis 2, verse 16 and 17, the Lord God commanded the man. Notice, he commanded the man. Eve is not even formed from Adam yet when this command goes forth. He commands the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. We'll be talking about that tree a little bit more in a few minutes. But why was it even put there? If he didn't want him to eat of it, and if it was going to be such a problem, why would he even put it in the garden? The reality is God's one of God's greatest gifts to man is free will. Even though it gets us in so much trouble so much of the time. He put, I believe, that tree in the garden for man to continue to be able to make a choice. Obey. Trust me. Experience my goodness. Experience my love. Obey me. One rule. Just think of that. One rule. Just don't eat of that one tree. And of course, we'll talk about what they did in a little while. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, God has created all this. And remember now, in Genesis chapter 1, when he created man, 
and woman, Adam and Eve, it was kind of like an overview, like all of creation was this big overview, not a lot of detail. After chapter 2, when he creates Adam and Eve, we get some of the detail. So it's not like, you know, confusion here. They're complementary. Chapter 1, overview. Chapter 2, a little bit more specifics. And it says in chapter 2, verse 18, the Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. Do you think this was a new revelation to the Lord? He'd looked at what he'd created, and oh, this is pretty good. Oh, doggone it, I forgot something. No, woman was not an afterthought. Not an afterthought. God's plan all along. So what's, what's he talking about? It's not good for man to be alone. I believe this is for us to understand that he really wanted Adam to understand he needed Eve. It says, man not to be alone. I will make a companion for him who corresponds to him. Now, translations, many translations say it differently there. But I think that's a clear way of saying it. He, he wanted to make a woman because it wasn't good for man to be alone. And he wanted to make a woman who would complement him, correspond to him, Complete him, if you would, but at the same time, completing her. You see the helpmate word, the helper word, and it can get so misunderstood and so misinterpreted that somehow or other, well, yeah, God created me a helper. All right. It's a great deal. Somebody to do what I want. Somebody can do the things I don't want to do. I get to rule over her. I have to have dominion over her you know, with an iron fist. No, none of that's true. He is There is an order of his creation. All of his creation had order and complexity. But we created it to complement. It's a command, companion who corresponds to him. We, we may remember that God had brought all the animals to Adam. It said he brought all the animals to Adam, and whatever Adam called them, that was their name. Now, I don't think that this was just an exercise because God didn't, couldn't name them. He created so many. I don't think it was just something to, to really challenge Adam and see what he would call them, although I'm sure it was interesting. But it was for him to realize, as all of these animals were brought to him by God, every single animal had a corresponding animal. They had one that they could mate with and be, and be fruitful and multiply with. And when they all got through, Adam probably sat there and looked around and said, I'm missing something here. Where's my corresponding creation? And God decided at that time, I believe, so I have understood that he needed this woman. In Genesis 2, verse 20, But for Adam no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall asleep into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took out of man his ribs and closed up the place with his flesh. He took out a rib. The, real, the, the, the original makes it sound like he just opened the side, but it's translated rib. And notice he was sleeping. Man had absolutely nothing to do other than to be a donor with this. This was truly and completely a gift of grace by God to man. He formed Eve, from him. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. 
Again, Adam was formed from the dust. Eve was formed from the flesh and bone of a man, Adam. And the man then said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, the man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. The man and the woman will become one flesh, like they were before Eve was formed from the rib in the side of Adam. It was one flesh. And they are united as one. And there was no shame. They were completely naked and there was no shame. There was no evil to the human body. There was no evil connected to sexuality. There was no shame whatsoever. In Genesis 1, verse 27, a reminder, God had said he created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed to them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. God told them very clearly, man and woman, a monogamous relationship, heterosexual relationship, with the purpose of creating, being fruitful and multiplying all of the human race, from Adam and Eve. They had the privilege and the responsibility given to them by God to fill the earth. God's creation. And then we come to Genesis chapter 3. We come to that place where deception, choice, and consequences Show up. Now, I have no idea how long it was from the time he put them in the garden till they ate of the fruit and got kicked out of the garden. I do know from Scripture that we'll see in, in the coming chapters that Adam, it says, had been alive for 130 years when he gave birth or Eve gave birth to his third son, Seth. So somewhere in there we know 130 years have passed by the time Seth is born. So I don't know how long it took before the serpent showed up and tempted Eve. I don't know how long they got to enjoy the garden before they got kicked out of the garden. In Genesis chapter 2, Verse 17, God had given Adam the command not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Remember, Eve had not even been made yet. But God had given Adam responsibility. Remember when I read in in Genesis uh, where it said that the man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. I believe there's a new family unit being formed. There's a new responsibility taking place. The authority of a mother and father over that son is different now 
They're still mom and dad and honor your mother and your father, but there's something different, and God has created a new family unit and has declared and given responsibility to the man as the head of that family unit to protect, to watch over, not to rule over with an iron fist. So the command that God had given Adam about the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that information had to be passed on from Adam to his wife, as clearly as we can tell in Scripture. Because God told Adam before Eve had even been created. So there's a responsibility there to Adam, even though we can easily say, well, it's Eve's fault, she ate the fruit. In Genesis 3, verse 1, it starts out, Now the serpent was more crafty. And that word is translated in different translations. He's more shrewd. He's more sly. He's more subtle than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? Notice the enemy's technique here. First thing he does is he focuses on what could be called the negative versus all the positive blessings that God has given them. Just think, all of creation, enjoy it, Adam, Eve, it's all for you. This beautiful garden, all the trees in it, all the amazing fruit, it's all for you. The beauty of it, the nutrition of it, I created it all for you. There's just one tree, don't go there. What is the tempter do ignores all of the good stuff and just, you know that one tree? Did he really say you couldn't eat of all the trees in the garden? He's questioning right away the goodness and the generosity of God, trying to create doubt. Create doubt. Is God really who he says he is? Does he really care about you and me the way he says he does? Is he truly really good? Is he really trustworthy? He's trying to erode that foundation of belief and of faith, questioning God's word. Think about that, how often man questions the word of God. Just think about how the unbelieving world declares it a story at best, a myth, a fairy tale, anything but the word of God. Creating doubt about the word. If it's not real, I don't have to listen to it. I don't have to follow it. I don't have to obey it. Not understanding that when God prohibits something, it's for our protection. It's for our benefit. So many times, and I'm guessing most of us maybe thought this way at one time or have certainly heard other people say this before. God, you Christians, you got to give up all this stuff and you just can't have any fun anymore. I'm not sure what fun they're talking about. Well, I sort of am. But the reality is, whatever it is we think we have to give up is so outweighed by the unbelievable blessings that God pours out upon his children. But the focus gets to be that one thing or those two things. 
not understanding that if it's truly prohibited by the word of God, it's for our benefit. It's for our good. He's a good God. He loves us and he wants good for us, period. But the enemy right away, that first deception comes trying to erode that trust and erode that confidence. And then the woman responds in verse 2. If you could put up that slide with the two scriptures, the one from Genesis 2, 16 and 17. At the top is what God actually said. And below is what Eve paraphrased it as. Notice when she reads these, she says these words. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden." But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. She starts messing with the word of God. Consciously, unconsciously, I don't know. I'd like to think that Adam gave her a correct translation or a correct quote from God when he told her about the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But she does two things. She adds to God's words, first of all, and when she adds to it, it seems to even make it more restrictive. You know, like, oh, gee, this is even worse than I thought. God said, don't eat of that tree, but you can't even touch that tree. He never said you can't touch that tree. You could sit and look at that beautiful tree all you wanted. You could touch the fruit if you wanted to touch the fruit. It didn't matter. The command was very simple. Don't eat of that fruit. So she adds to the word of God, making it more restrictive. And then she goes on and she says, um, or you will die. It's almost here is, is, is she diminishes a little bit the seriousness of God about this whole situation. She leaves out one word, you will surely die. In other words, let there no be no doubt about this. You can enjoy all of creation, but that one tree, don't eat the fruit of that tree, or you will surely, undoubtedly die. She left a little bit of wiggle room by removing that one word. And what does the serpent do? Verse 4, you will not surely die, directly contradicting the word of God. And not only... I guess it's the same thing. But when he says that, he is undermining one of the primary doctrines in the Bible. Sin causes death. When you eat of that, you won't surely die. When you disobey God, you surely won't be separated from him. You will not surely die. And he goes on and says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Again, it's like he's slowly eroding away your confidence and trust in God. It's like he's, God's motives here. He's got some secret motives here. There's a reason why he doesn't want you to eat of that. And it has nothing to do with whether it would be good for you or not. It's if you eat of it, you're going to be more like me. Like God needs to be concerned about us becoming more like him. And in it, there is, a, I guess, a statement that you could say is a half-truth. You know, when he says, you will become more like God, knowing good and evil. They will gain more insight. They will gain more knowledge. But what he leaves out is the 
consequences, the cost, the price that you're going to have to pay for that knowledge. Sin is like that in our own lives. You know, I've never experienced that before. I know a lot of people have. I wonder what it's like. Well, but it's prohibited from in the Word of God. Yeah, well, yeah, but everybody's doing it. Let's look at sexual sin for a moment. God designed sex as the most intimate act between a husband and a wife. Everybody's doing it. If it's the most intimate act, the most pleasurable act, it must really be good. Let's try it. Let's experiment with it just to see. And we think there's no consequences. But if God prohibited it, there's a benefit to us of refraining from that sin or any other sin. We do not need to experience it to know that God's right. And there will always, always be consequences. The teachings up to this point in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 should have taught us God is good. We can trust him. Every one of his actions up to that point were to bless us, to bless man. Genesis chapter 6, or verse 6, I said, of, of, of chapter 3 says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good. Notice there's a Three parts to this temptation here. The woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate it. Threefold temptation. She saw that it was good for food. It would nourish her body. She saw that. It would take, it, it's something that would be productive in her body. She saw that it was pleasing to her eye. It was beautiful to look at. Wow, look at that amazing fruit on that tree. And she also knew that it would give wisdom. In 1 John 2, 16, it says this, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and boastful pride of life. It's not from the Father, but it's from the world. The world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, lust of the things of the world. The interesting thing here is Eve hadn't sinned yet. She hadn't sinned yet. So there, there was still a desire in her even though she hadn't sinned. And they were put there by God. So it's not that any of the desires were wrong. It's that she violated the word of God to experience them and fulfill them. It's not abnormal for any of us to desire food for our physical body. There's nothing unnatural about any of us looking on the beauty of God's creation. And there's nothing unnatural about us wanting to gain more wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. It's how it's accomplished that causes all the problems. And the real problem came down to how did she consider the word of God? And notice when at the end of that section of scripture it said, and Adam ate too because he was with her. 
it certainly makes it seem like while all this temptation was taking place, he was with her. And he didn't say a word. He didn't try to remind her of the word of God. Eve was deceived and she violated God's word and ate. Adam got the word directly from God himself and chose to abandon his position of authority and responsibility and he ate of the fruit with her. Ignorance of the word of God, disregard for the word of God, or deception about the word of God opens us up and makes us very vulnerable to temptation. And this is where I would say we need to be in the word of God. We need to be in the word of God. We need to trust the word of God. We need to be confident that the word of God is good for us. We need to be confident that God is good himself, and these are his words. We should not distrust it. We should not disregard it. We should not. We, we need to be informed and have an understanding so we're not easily deceived by the enemy or by self. Hasn't changed much. Psalms 119.11 says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Hidden the word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Just going to read quickly verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. They realized they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called the man, Where are you? He answered. He answered and said, I heard you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And their response is classic. When we sin, whether we get confronted by other people or we get confronted by the Holy Spirit, man, our natural tendency is to start making excuses and pointing blame and doing whatever we can to justify what I just did. We need to remember when Adam and Eve sinned, it was not only affected their relationship with God, it affected their relationship with each other. They realized they were naked and they were ashamed and afraid and it affected their relationship with all of creation. And the man's first response was, the woman, let's blame her. And then by implication, that you gave me, God. You created her. You made her from me. She should know better. I know better. But it's the woman that you gave me. And immediately, Eve. Poor Eve. The only man on earth is pointing his finger at you. And she says, no, 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 no. The serpent deceived me. And again, not clearly stated, but by implication. You know, God, that serpent that you created, he deceived me. We all have difficulty owning up to our mistakes. We need to be quick to repent. Adam and Eve set a bad example for us. And God then takes care of and deals with all three of the participants 
of this act. First, he deals with the serpent. He tells the serpent that, you know, you're cursed more than all the other cattle. You're cursed more than any of the beasts of the field. From now on, on your belly you will go. You're going to crawl on your belly and you're going to eat of the dirt. It says eat the dirt, probably eat in the dirt. Your face is laying right on the dirt. That's what you're going to do from here on out. And if that's not enough, I will put enmity. I'm going to put this thing between your seed and the woman's seed. And we see here the first promise of a Messiah. You will bruise his heel that he's going to crush your head. So he deals with the serpent. Then he deals with the woman. In Genesis 3.16, to the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pain in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children, and your desires will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Threefold. And there's two different words for pain here used in those two. I, I just always like to connect the childbearing and the childbirth together. But there's two different words in the Hebrew. I will increase your pain in, in the, the childbearing and having children. You know, it just seems to be innate in, in, in ladies and mothers and women that they worry way more about their kids. What are they doing? Are they going to be okay? Are they going to be safe? There's this worrying thing that comes with being a mother. And that's kind of what that first word that's interpreted pain and childbearing means. It carries an idea of worrisomeness, if that's a word, that a man doesn't quite carry. Pain in childbirth, I probably don't have to explain that to any of you women that have had children, and you can't explain it to us men. We just know it's bad. And then it goes on and says, your, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, there is at least three or four different interpretations of what that means. I'm not going to go through all of them. One might mean, gee, there's all this pain and childbearing and childbirth, but you know what? Your desire is still going to be for, for him, and therefore you're going to have more kids. There's one look at it. The other is, you know, your desire would be for your husband. You want to rule over him, but I'm sorry. He's still going to have authority and rule over you in the right way. And there's more, at least two more um, possible interpretations, and they're there for a different time, different messages. Your desire, your longing, your craving. And then he gets to the man, and he says, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree. Notice he did two things that caught God's attention. He didn't just eat from the fruit. He says, because you ate, listen to your wife, because I have given you authority, and I have given you responsibility And you let go of that. You forfeited that, knowing that what your wife was telling you to do and offering you to do was directly contradictory to my instructions, my commands to you. And then you ate of the the fruit that I told you you must not eat. Then he goes, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will... You will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and for dust you will return. Because you listened to your wife, abdicating responsibility and authority, because you ate of it. Because of that, the ground and all the creation is cursed. You know, there seems to be something that will grow anywhere, anytime, no matter what, 
thistles. I got out of I got off on a tangent in my study. They were talking about different kinds of thistles and how many seeds a particular thistle does. And if when that thistle produces two or three times and you're in the numbers of billions. And a lot of them land in my yard in my wife's garden. And they just grow so well when everything around it doesn't grow at all. To make things grow, you've got to nurture the ground. You've got to nurture the soil. You need to fertilize it. You need to weed it. You need to pull those thistles. You need to take care of it. And then if you're really lucky and it rains and you don't get hailed out, you finally get a harvest that the bugs don't eat it and kill it or the deer don't eat your beets. And it just goes on and on and on. It's a struggle because Adam ate the fruit. Seriously, he did. And work became drudgery. All of creation was cursed. Romans 8, 20. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And it's going to continue to groan until Jesus comes back and there's a new heaven and there's a new earth consequences of the choices made because of deception. And in Genesis 3, verse 24, God says, I got to drive them out of the garden. This place that I created specifically for them, especially for them, put in there for them with all this that they can enjoy and eat forever and ever and ever as the aid of the tree of life. I got to kick them out and they can't get back in and I'm going to put some cherubim with a, with a sword that just keeps going all around in circles. and There's no way you can get through. Boy, what harsh punishment. No, what amazing grace. Amazing grace. God knew. He already knew from the foundations of the world that he had a plan of salvation to compensate for the consequences of sin. He already knew that. And he knew that if Adam and Eve would return to the garden somehow and they would go and eat of the tree of life, they would live forever separated from God because of their sin. So even this expulsion from the garden, the guards of the angels at the garden were for our benefit so that when Jesus Christ, the one who bruised the serpent's head, comes and dies and pays a price for our sins, man would be able to take advantage of God's amazing provision. The fall of man into sin produced conditions that alienated us from God, from each other in so many ways, and from all of creation around us. And when they decided to disobey, they made a decision that changed humankind until Jesus comes back. We need to understand there's consequences to our sin, but there's also been provision for our sin. As believers in Jesus Christ, we can be forgiven of our sin and he will walk with us through the consequences of our sin as long as we put our hope and faith and trust in him. You know, making the choice should have been easy, like it should be for us when it comes to temptation. Do we trust that the creator God is a good God? Do we trust that the word of God is for our best, every bit of it? And knowing that we can trust God, 
Who are we going to trust? Are we going to trust him? Are we going to trust self? Are we going to trust the deceiver? Our choices have consequences. Let's pray. God, we do acknowledge that you are good, that you love us, that we're your children. You provided a way for our sins to be forgiven, for all of man's sins to be forgiven. All who accept Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, cleansed by the blood of Jesus. You made a way. And Father God, we do rejoice in the reality and the truth that you are coming back one day and the consequences of sin and temptation itself will be removed. Father, we look forward to the day when we see the fullness of your salvation. But until that day, Lord, we pray that you would continue by the power of your Holy Spirit that lives and dwells in your children that we would be sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with others. That the kingdom of God would be advancing amongst those who up till this point have rejected the good news of Jesus. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the freedom that we have in this nation. But God, there has been no freedom that is greater than the freedom granted through the cross, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus to those who love him that we are free from the bondage of sin and free from the power of death. We give you thanks for that this morning. Father, I pray for each one of us here, those that are listening online, God, that, that we would continually put our hope, trust, and confidence in you, that we would be continually responding as your Holy Spirit draws us to the word. God, that you would help us to have greater understanding and knowledge of your word. God, that we would be empowered by your Holy Spirit and the word of God to resist the temptation that comes our way. God, I pray that as we go our separate ways today, this week, that you would go before us. God, that you watch over us and keep us safe. I pray that we truly may be the kind of ambassadors that you declare us to become for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray all these things. Amen.